You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. Today's scripture is from Isaiah 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins." Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue the nations before him and to loose the belts of kings. To open the doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the one who formed him. Ask me of the things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it, He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. 
They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. It's the word of the Lord. When is the last time that you found yourself saying, God, what are you doing? As Christians, we believe in the sovereignty of God, which means we believe that every event in our lives and every event in the world is ultimately governed by divine providence. The good, loving, sovereign God is orchestrating all of time and all of history toward His appointed purposes and ends. But let's be honest. There are things in your life And there are things in the world that don't make sense. There are things in your life and things in the world that you can't see or immediately reckon with. Where's the good? Where's the purpose in this? What might a good God be doing in this particular situation? And so whether frequently or infrequently, we often find ourselves asking, God, what are you doing? That question reveals something about our view of God, doesn't it? It reveals that that something in us thinks that if God would just let us into what He's doing, if God would just give us all the data and connect all the dots for us, if He would just give us all the information, then somehow we'd find Him more worthy of worship or obedience or submission. But I wonder, is that really true? Part of what it means for God to be God is that God is beyond us. God is in some ways mysterious. God is infinite. God is inscrutable. He won't be scrutinized. We can't quite figure Him out and condense Him down into a math equation or a set of causes and effects. God has purposes and reasons that are beyond our understanding. That's part of what it means for Him to be God. And so whereas oftentimes we think we would like less mystery, God seems content to give us more mystery. God seems content to draw a line and say, there are things about myself and my purposes in the world that I will reveal, and others that I won't. God's content to say in Isaiah 45, verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. 
Whereas we feel like we need to make excuses for God of why he allows certain things to happen, he feels no need to make those excuses for himself. He's fine claiming responsibility for everything that happens in the world he's created and saying, I do all these things. This is a high, lofty view of the sovereignty, the providence of God. And it causes Isaiah to respond in verse 15 of chapter 45, Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel. A God who hides himself. That's not really what we want, right? We're not so comfortable with that. You see, Isaiah is teaching us something very crucial about the nature and the character of God. There's a difference between God being mysterious, between God being hidden, and God being unknowable. God has, in fact, revealed himself to us. He just hasn't revealed everything we think we'd like to know. So, Isaiah says, God, you're, you're a hidden God. You, you cloak yourself in mystery, but that's, you're still knowable. That's something different from a God who's not knowable at all. See, Isaiah here is preaching a message to the people in his day and to us as well. There's something about God that he wants us to grasp that if we grasp it, makes a difference then in how we follow God and how we worship God and how we understand what God's doing in our lives and in the world. The message Isaiah is preaching is quite simply this. Because we know what God is ultimately doing, we can trust what He's presently doing. Because we know what God is ultimately doing, we can trust what God is presently doing. This is what Isaiah wants to communicate to us this morning. This is, in fact, the essence and the heart of biblical faith. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is not some foray into the unknown. Faith is not wishful thinking. Rather, faith is confidence in what God has revealed that sustains us in the midst of what He hasn't revealed. Faith is simply a confidence in what we do know about God that sustains us in the midst of what we don't know about God. That's the message of Isaiah 44 and 45. And it's a message that has great significance for us this morning and for us in the world that we live in. And so I want to help you hear this message and see this message in the text. I want to do so by doing three things. I want you to see the shape of the text, the situation of the text, and the sermon in the text. Right, so I want to show you in Isaiah 44 and 45 the shape of the text, the situation of the text, and the sermon in the text. Those are the three points of the message this morning. So let's look first of all at the shape of the text. In other words, I want, this is a big chunk of scripture. You just heard it all read. I want you to grasp the contours and the overall shape of the text. What, what, what is it ultimately? that God is communicating here. This text has a what, a how, and a why. And I want to help you just see sort of the the 30,000 foot view of this text. The what, the how, and the why. So here's the what that God is ultimately communicating in this text. We're going to see it in verse 24, 26, and 28 of chapter 44. 
God says this, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Verse 26, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Verse 28, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So the ultimate promise God is making here, the ultimate thing he's communicating to his people concerns the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. God says, the city of Jerusalem and the cities of Judah will be rebuilt. That's the ultimate thing that God is saying here. That's the what. How is that going to happen? Isaiah 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Later on in verse 13, God says, I have stirred him, that is Cyrus, up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. So the what is the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. The how is God's going to use Cyrus, who we'll learn a little bit more about in a minute. But this is speaking of Cyrus the Great, the ruler of the Persian Empire. So what? The rebuilding of Jerusalem. How is God going to bring that about? By using Cyrus to do it. And ultimately, why? Why is God interested in this? Why is this important and significant to God's purposes in the world? Chapter 45 Verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Why is God going to use Cyrus to rebuild Jerusalem because ultimately God wants His salvation to be declared to the ends of the earth. God is making a way for all people to come to Him and experience salvation. He is God and there is no other. He's inviting all the ends of the earth to turn to Him. So so this is the 30,000 foot view of what's going on in this text. The what is God's purpose to rebuild Jerusalem. How is God going to do that? Through a human leader named Cyrus. And why does this need to happen? So that all the nations of the earth can experience God's salvation. Be invited to it. That's the shape of the text. That's, that's just a flyover of what's happening here, okay? You need to understand this because then this begins to help us understand the message of the text for its original readers and for us. So that's what God is saying in the text. That's the shape of the text. Let's Let's understand now the situation of the text. Into what situation is God speaking this word? We saw it starts with, thus says the Lord. Right? So who are the people he's talking to and what is their situation? 
Let's do a little history lesson this morning. If you've been with us, some of this won't be new. But if you're just joining us in the study of Isaiah, this will be helpful. So remember, Isaiah is writing this section of his book to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. And so I brought along a little map to help orient us to what's going on here. You'll see Jerusalem is the homeland, the home base, the home city of God's people. That's where they are from. But right now they're in exile in the city of Babylon, which is 85 miles south of Baghdad. You can still go there today and see an incredible set of ruins of the ancient city of Babylon, though I wouldn't recommend taking that trip anytime soon. At this time... Babylon was the largest city in the world. I brought along an artist's reconstruction of what this city looked like. This is sort of an aerial photograph of the city of Babylon. This is one of the most intelligently built and best fortified cities of the ancient world. You can see what the original builders of this city did is they built it literally straddling the Euphrates River. That's the river that runs right through the middle. And then they cut moats around the entire city to allow the Euphrates water to divert around it. And on the inside of those moats built massive fortified walls. Okay, now this is before drone warfare. They didn't have satellite photography. There's no surface-to-surface missiles, all right? So if you wanted to conquer this city, you have to figure out how to get across the huge moat that they've built and over the massively fortified wall. This is why this city stood in human history for thousands of years. This city was built and rebuilt throughout the ancient times. In fact, this is where Abraham was from. Ur of the Chaldeans is what became the city of Babylon. This goes back thousands of years in human history. So this is where the people of God are living at the time that Isaiah is writing this. They're in captivity in Babylon, both the city and its surrounding land and region. Now what Isaiah is prophesying to us this morning is the rise of Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia. Cyrus hails from the city of Persis, which is in modern day Iran to the east of Babylon. Cyrus, in case you don't know, is one of the greatest leaders in the history of the world. He came to the throne in Persis around 550 BC, and he quickly subdued all the territory between there and Babylon. And in 539 BC, he did what many people considered to be impossible and what had not been done for centuries, and that was he conquered and overthrew the great city of Babylon. Let's go back to that picture of Babylon. How would you conquer this city with no modern warfare? Well, what strategy might you use to attack and defeat a city like this? I'll tell you what Cyrus did. It's one of the great feats of ancient warfare. He went a couple miles upstream. He built a dam and he diverted the entire Euphrates River. He did this on a holiday when the people of Babylon were reveling. And so literally, the entire moat system and the river dried up. And Cyrus and his troops walked into the city through the aqueducts and took it over in a matter of days. It was one of the brilliant moves of ancient warfare. And once Cyrus conquered Babylon, the world was his. At its greatest extent, the Persian Empire spread over most of the known world at that time. It included these modern territories. Iraq, Iran, Kuwait, Syria, 
Jordan, Israel, Lebanon, Turkey, Macedonia, Armenia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Afghanistan, China, Pakistan, and oh yeah, parts of Libya and Egypt. At its zenith, the Persian Empire ruled over 44% of the world's population, making it to this day the largest empire in history. Cyrus ruled more of the world's people than anyone ever has before or since. His honorary title, one of the titles that they called him was King of the Four Corners of the World. And you can see why. Now, it gets even more interesting. Once Cyrus conquered Babylon and took over all of its territory, someone handed Cyrus a scroll of the book of Isaiah. And he read chapter 45. And he saw that it was about him and that it named him by name. And he concluded, well, whoever this God is, I certainly should honor him by doing what he wants. And so he gave the edict for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, and he funded that rebuilding effort from his own imperial treasury. We know all of this from the historian Josephus, who reports it to us, and from Cyrus's own declarations, which you can read to this day in archaeological materials. This text that you're reading this morning was part of God's means for accomplishing what God promises in this text. Now, from the perspective of history, of course, we can see, we can look back and see, oh, the coming of Cyrus, Cyrus's conquering of Babylon, that was a good thing for God's people. But if you're one of the Babylonian exiles, living out of your homeland in Babylon, under persecution, and you hear news that a Persian king is coming to conquer Babylon, that's not immediately going to sound to you like good news. Knowing, as you know, that the Persians are not worshipers of the one true God. In fact, they're Zoroastrians. You're going to assume that probably what's going to happen is an even stronger bondage. If the king of Babylon has you in subjection, how much more the great king of Persia? The question the original readers would have had in hearing about this would be the same question you might have, God what are you doing? Cyrus? The pagan idol worshiper? I mean, Isaiah's been making fun of idols for chapters and chapters. God, you're going to use that guy? How could you possibly call him your shepherd? Your anointed? Your Messiah? He doesn't even worship you. God, what are you doing? This brings us to point number three. The sermon in the text. The sermon that Isaiah is preaching to God's people in his day and that he's preaching to us in our day. I've already summarized it for you like this. Because we know what God is ultimately doing, we can trust in what He's presently doing. This is the sermon that Isaiah is preaching. This is the message he wants us to understand. 
That because of what God is ultimately doing, we can trust what he's presently doing, even if what he's presently doing doesn't entirely make sense to us. I want you to look, first of all, at the rebuke Isaiah offers. And he offers this rebuke because the hearers, the audience in his own day, would have resisted the reality of Cyrus being called in verse 1, God's Messiah, God's anointed. No one else but Jesus is called this in the Bible. The only other person to be called God's anointed, God's Messiah, is Cyrus the Persian, the pluralist, the Zoroastrian, the pagan, the pragmatist. Isaiah 45, verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or, your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. You see that the truth God is leveraging here is the distinction between the creator and the creature. God God says, notice, ask me of things to come. But then he says, will you command me concerning my children? God's acknowledging there are two dispositions with which we can approach him. One is inquisition, right? God, God, what what are you doing? It doesn't make sense to me. I, I don't grasp it. But it's a humble posture of asking. But there's another disposition we can have that that maybe is phrased in the same way, but that comes from a different heart, right? And, And that's the disposition of commanding God. God, how could you do this? God, why are you doing this? God, who do you think you are? God says, look, let me remind you of who formed you, who made you, There's a basic distinction in the world between creator and creature. I am the potter and you're the clay. There are things about what I'm presently doing that I'm not going to reveal to you. You're going to have to trust me. Just like clay has to trust the potter that's shaping that clay and forming it into something important, you're going to have to trust me as your creator and the one who formed you. And the reason trusting God is a good idea, the reason this makes absolute sense, the reason this should not fill us with fear or with skepticism, but rather with joy and worship, is because God has told us what he's ultimately doing. Look at verse 18 of chapter 45. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God. 
who formed the earth and made it. He established it. Now catch this. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. So so God's saying from the get-go, the fact that I'm creator means I didn't just create and then kind of figure out what I was going to do after that. I created the earth in the first place to be inhabited. There was a purpose for which I created what exists in the first place. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. God's just reminding us of the big truths about Him. I'm the Creator. I made you and the world you live in for a good and useful purpose. I speak what is true. I declare what is right. When I invite people and encourage people to seek me, I don't do that in vain. God's reminding us of the big truths about Him that He's revealed all through the Scriptures. And then flip over to verse 22. We've already seen this. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. This is what I'm up to in the world. What I'm up to is inviting all the ends of the earth to turn to me and be saved. I am God and I am decreeing and delivering a salvation that will be for all peoples. That's what I'm up to. That's why, people of God, you should trust me. Even if what I'm up to presently doesn't make sense to you. You see what he's saying to the original audience? He's saying, yes, I'm going to use Cyrus, the Persian conqueror, the pagan. I'm going to use him to rebuild Jerusalem. He even says in chapter 45, I call you by name, though you don't know me. He acknowledges, yep, I'm going to use Cyrus. He's not even going to get converted and worship me. It's not going to be a great story they're going to tell on Caleb. He's not going to be converted and become a worshiper of God. I'm going to name you, even though you don't name me. You don't know who I am. I'm doing that. Why? Because there's something greater I'm ultimately doing, and he's he's a part of that. See, because we know what God is ultimately doing, because we know the end purposes of God in history, we can and should trust what he's presently doing, even though we don't know and understand all the ins and outs of what he's presently doing. Listen to Ray Ortland, who makes the same point I'm making, perhaps in a more helpful way. Quote, If God really is the king of everything, then the bigger questions of life get simpler, even as the smaller questions get harder. The smaller questions are, why do I have cancer? Will my boyfriend get home safely from Iraq? Will there be enough money in my retirement plan to see me through? These are not small questions. They're weighty. But they're smaller than questions like, does my life have any meaning at all? Do I have any enduring hope at all? Am I on my own in an empty universe? Those 
are the bigger questions. And the gospel leaves many of our urgent but smaller questions unanswered. Even as it assures us of God's redemptive purpose up at the level of our bigger questions. Whatever happens, the greatest thing we can know is this. I am the Lord who does all these things. Whatever God does, He is taking us more deeply into His love. And He asks us to trust Him enough not to take offense, but to follow Him. People of Corndale, our lives are full of smaller questions. Significant ones, weighty ones, frustrating and perplexing ones. Why are we struggling with infertility? Why does our child have cancer? Why has my spouse left me? Why am I struggling to find work? These are weighty questions. They're not unimportant. And yet the gospel leaves many of them unanswered. While at the same time answering our larger questions. Am I alone in the universe? No. Does my life have any meaning at all? Yes. Do I have any hope in this world? Yes. Because we know what God is ultimately doing, we can trust what He's presently doing. God has answered the big questions for us so that we have confidence to trust Him in the small and perplexing ones that He hasn't given us an answer to. On Friday, I went down to Tecumseh State Prison to visit a friend of mine who is incarcerated there. He committed a very significant crime. He should be there. His sentence is 50 years. If I see him at all outside of Tecumseh State Prison, it will be when we're both retired and old. And I went to visit him, to talk with him, to share a few hours with him, and to answer questions that he has about the Bible. And about God. Because while he was incarcerated, some chaplains shared the gospel with him and he came to saving faith in Christ and he's been reading his Bible and growing as a disciple and making the most of his time there to grow in his knowledge of God. But one of the things that Sean said to me as we were sitting on the hard plastic institutional furniture under the watchful eye of a Department of Corrections officer, Bob, I don't know if I can make it in here for 30 years. This is a depressing place to be. I I know why I'm here. I know what I did. But I don't know if I can live here for decades. See, here's what gives Sean hope in those moments that he knows what God is ultimately doing. 
He said later on, the only thing that sustains me in here, the only thing that gives my life any meaning is Scripture and studying it and reading it and learning about it and understanding it because that begins to connect me with what God is ultimately doing in eternity and in the universe and that makes my life here in Tecumseh State Prison have meaning. If it weren't for this, I don't know what I would do. What is God presently doing in my friend Sean's life? A lot of questions that are unanswered. He has two teenage kids that he's not going to see graduate. He's not going to walk them down the aisle at their wedding. They're going to have grandchildren and maybe great-grandchildren by the time he gets to see them at all. And see, Sean's not a hardened criminal. Though the crime he committed was serious, he had no record before that. He's not the kind of guy that, that you see traditionally in prisons where there's a life of crime. He, he's a pretty gentle guy who made a really bad decision. So what gives a guy like that capacity to trust what God's doing right now in his life when all he's looking at are the four cinder block walls of a jail cell the size of your bathroom? The fact that he knows what God is ultimately doing. The fact that he has a perspective on history and on meaning and on the the significance of his life that's bigger than the little world that he lives in right now. Because he knows what God is ultimately doing, he can trust what God is presently doing, even though what God is presently doing is difficult to understand. And see, here's the truth that Isaiah wants his readers to know and wants us to know, is that what God is ultimately doing and what God is presently doing are always connected. We don't always see how they are connected, but they are always connected. Right? Keep in mind, What is God doing in their day? He's raising up the Persian emperor Cyrus. At their time in history, with their limited perspective on the world they lived in in the ancient Near East, that doesn't probably make a whole lot of sense. The idea of a foreign conqueror coming and invading Babylon, subjugating the people who are subjugating them, does not sound immediately like a great plan of God for the salvation of all people. But see, what God is doing is raising up Cyrus so that he can rebuild Jerusalem because the prophet said Jerusalem is where Jesus is going to be born and Jesus has to be born and suffer and die on a hill outside Jerusalem and rise from the dead three days later so that all the ends of the earth can be saved and be welcomed into the purposes God is doing. That's what God's doing here. God's ultimate purpose and God's present purpose are connected even when we don't see it and can't connect the dots. God says, I've told you what I'm ultimately doing so that you have confidence to trust me in the present even when it doesn't seem to make sense. Listen, even right now this morning, what God's ultimately doing and what God is presently doing are connected. What is God ultimately doing in the world? He's gathering a people for himself, for his praise and his fame and his glory. He's doing it through the proclamation of the gospel. And what is God doing this morning? He's inviting you to be a part of that people. 
He's welcoming you into that people through faith in Jesus Christ. He's saying to you, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 45, 23. By myself I have sworn, to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Listen to me, (laughs) that's an invitation and a threat. God is saying to you this, every knee is going to bow to me, either willingly or unwillingly, either now or on judgment day. Every knee is going to bow. The only question is, will you bow now in worship or will you bow later in judgment? This verse, of course, is pregnant with meaning and significance in the scope of redemptive history. Because the Apostle Paul picks it up in Philippians chapter 2. In a text you're probably familiar with, but maybe you've never seen it connected to the book of Isaiah. Philippians chapter 2, our understanding is this is an early hymn that the people of God sang in the early church, much like the songs that we sang today. Christ Jesus, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul's just picking up Isaiah 45. Saying, this is what God has been doing throughout history. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is the one who's fulfilling the purposes of God to save people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And God will do that and God is purposing to do that and God is doing that here this morning. That welcome, that invitation stands open to you, but Jesus Christ is the way in. God says, turn to me and be saved because there is no other salvation. So that's the invitation that's before you this morning. Turn to me and be saved. Because we know what God is ultimately doing, we can trust what He's presently doing. And for some of you, what He's presently doing is calling you through the gospel for the very first time. And for others of you, what He's presently doing is confirming your hope and your trust in Him in the midst of difficult and challenging present circumstances. But see, this isn't the kind of text and this isn't the kind of sermon and this isn't the kind of message that can give you hope apart from and outside of Jesus. God's not saying here, what I'm ultimately doing is something vague and general and so have hope in your present circumstances. What he's saying is, here's what I'm ultimately doing. Saving a people from myself from all the ends of the earth. And so you're welcomed into that through Jesus. And when you come into that through Jesus, what God is presently doing in your life is orchestrating everything toward that end and goal. Now listen, are there still going to be things in your life that don't make sense? You bet. There's still going to be suffering and hardship and difficulty and perplexity and uncertainty? Yes. 
because of what we already lamented this morning. We live in a fallen world. And so you and I are not always going to be able to connect the dots between the, su- the suffering and the difficulty that's going on in our lives right now and how that all fits in God's ultimate redemptive purposes for our lives and for the world. But God says, listen to me, because you know where we're going, because I've told you what I'm doing, will you trust me right now? Will you trust that what's going on right now is a part of a grander story that you will not see until you have the perspective that we have on Cyrus and Babylon? Until you look back from eternity on your life and go, oh, I I see now. Makes sense now. Because we know what God is ultimately doing, we can trust what he's presently doing. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel. So let's hide ourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? God, we confess this morning that we feel it would be easier for us to trust you if we had more data, if we could make more sense of things. If we had more insight into why you're doing what you're doing. So thank you for the reassurance this morning that it is not exhaustive knowledge of everything that makes us trust you. But rather it's the fact that you are a God who is sovereign and mysterious. Who invites us to trust in you and to be caught up in your purposes of redemption. God, forgive us for making ourselves into gods by demanding that you answer our questions and meet our objections in ways that make sense to us. Help us to hear this morning Isaiah's gentle rebuke that we are the clay and you are the potter. Help us trust in not what we know and don't know, but rather in who you are. Let us not have our faith in the information that we have about what you're doing, but rather in what we know about your character and what you've revealed to be true about yourself. Help us rest in you. God, thank you that you have shown us what you are ultimately doing. You've given us tons of data and promises and truth about where the world is headed. So that even right now, in the perplexity of the present, we can trust you. Renew our trust in you this morning through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.